Beyond the Books is a podcast from the University of Edinburgh's School of Literatures, Languages, and Cultures that gives you a behind-the-scenes look at research and the people who make it happen. I'm Emma Aviette, a PhD student of English Literature and current postgraduate web and communications intern. In this episode, I had the chance to speak with Dr. Young-Mi Kim, Senior Lecturer in Korean Studies, and hear about the incredible research she is doing in her field. We discuss her current work, which explores the rise of polarization, inequality, and political contention in South Korea, specifically as it relates to online discussions around feminism and the vanishing middle class. We also discuss the recent events in Myanmar and question how education can bring hope. From internet trolls to the difficulties of interdisciplinary research, Young Mi sheds light on a range of interesting topics. So I hope you stay tuned and enjoy. Hi, Young Me. It's so great to have you on today. Thank you so much for coming in. Hi, Emma. Thank you for inviting me. Um, okay, so a lot of our listeners might be people who are interested in becoming academics, and I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming a lecturer in Korean studies. When did you know that you wanted to be an academic, and what was kind of the pathway to the University of Edinburgh? I know that's probably a really big question, so feel free to say what you want of your journey. That's true. Um... Being an academic and coming to Edinburgh, indeed, is a big question. So when I came to Edinburgh, I was determined to be an academic. I know a lot of people say, you know, when you start PhD, I'm not really sure what we'll do, academic, think tank, or politician, or any kind of, um, you know, career would be optional. I wasn't like that, but in my deep heart, you know, I thought I will be academic because I know what I'm good at it. But I came to Edinburgh in 2001 as a PhD student in politics and IR department. And then I lost my supervisor. So that was a really, really hard time for me. And then I went to Sheffield. In the meantime, uh, it's a private side. Uh, my classmate became my husband <laughs> from Edinburgh. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a uh, that was the best part of my life Aww. and i uh, i married in the following year and i started my phd in sheffield and i was extremely lucky to come back to edinburgh as a postdoctoral fellow the first postdoctoral fellowship was by esrc and then i was lucky again to have another postdoctoral fellowship a uh, leverhulme trust postdoctoral fellowship another two years so i was in edinburgh for three years from 2007 to the end of nine and then i um went to budapest central european university so from there i i got a job starting with a researcher and then assistant professor and move on to senior um, senior level associate professor then i joined edinburgh again 2017 i came back at the Department of Asian Studies as a senior lecturer. So Edinburgh is very special for me. Oh, good. What do you like so much about the, the university or the city? Both. University first is very well known. For me, I did my BA in Australia. So I was always looking at what's going on in the UK because all the respectful lecturers that I had from my courses they had a degree from the UK. <laughs> yeah. so I've been looking at universities. I've known Edinburgh for a long time and I knew Edinburgh is very uh, well-known. 
prestigious university. So when I got offer here, yeah, I've got some offer from other universities as well for PhD program, but Edinburgh was my first option. So um, I was sad to leave as a student, but I also had a great opportunity for my PhD in Sheffield. And I was in tears when I got the job as postdoc, you know, coming back Aww. to Edinburgh. <laughs> And then, you know, even happier when I got a job at um, Edinburgh as a senior lecturer at the Department of Asian Studies. That's amazing. Yeah, I I mean, I'm from actually California originally myself and University of Edinburgh was so many kids dream schools. It's just, it is just such an amazing university and you can't beat the fact that there's a castle in the middle of the city. <laughs> exactly. You, you were saying that you studied in Australia and Budapest. And I think I saw on your um, research page, you were in Vienna for a while and I know mm -hmm. Korea. I mean, that's amazing to have been able to travel to so many places and work and research there. Do you think that it's important for academics to travel and, and work and do research around the world? It's a part of um, our job because we are encouraged to do um, knowledge exchange. So we are encouraged to, you know, take part in various international conference. But in my case, I don't think it's just my case. I mean, in a very globalized world, I go for, you know, job availability, you know, there's a job opportunity I would go. So the reason why I could teach in Dublin, University, um, UCD, University College Dublin, um, I was doing my postdoc in Edinburgh. But at the same time, there was job opportunity to teach and develop a course on East Asia. So I put my CV and saying I can teach East Asia relations. And interestingly, that was my first ever course, my own course. I taught that I taught two courses there for three years. But that two courses developed much further for my future, you know, teaching and. I'm still teaching East Asian relation, IR, East Asian international relation and Korean politics and international relation. But the, the first teaching from UCD still goes on. I would not say the same content, same reading. Reading is totally changed, but I developed since then, 2007. So that was not really my research topic at all, but I went for demand, what students are interested in. Are there any places in particular that you really liked personally, like living, or where has been your favorite place to kind of live and work? Oh, live and work, I would say Edinburgh is the best. I like Taiwan, but it was way too hot. Oh, fair. It's not <laughs> a problem here, is it? Yeah, Singapore was amazing and Hong Kong too, but I, I, don't, I know I mean, people complain about weather in Edinburgh, but I'm fine with that. It's kind of calm over the year. Yeah. You have a four different seasons in one day, right? Yeah, you'll have you know some wool cashmere jumper with a waterproof you know jacket. We are set for entire year. Exactly, <laughs> it's it's easier to escape the cold than it is when it's too hot to cool down. So I'm a hundred percent in agreement with you on that. <laughs> One thing I noticed a lot on the Korean studies page was that there's a lot of focus on interdisciplinary research. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's important to bring in different fields of study like cultures or the arts or bringing in social sciences in relation to literature or international relations research? It's a big question. It's um, positive and negative. I am right in, you know, as a political scientist, 
all surrounded by historian or literature specialists, you know, in my department, in my own department. That's good. I learn a lot from my colleagues. I learn a lot from, you know, different disciplines. That's a good part. But it's kind of when you publish article and also when we apply for large grant, they all encourage, oh, you need to do international, no, what do you say, Uh, interdisciplinary networking. But when you actually um, publish, you will get criticism from multiple directions. So if my paper in political scientists would be love, and actually that's exactly you know the, my my very recent paper on feminism. For some reason, that journal is more area studies specialist. So my paper was gone to feminist scholars who are not political scientists, but probably I don't know who they are, but are probably cultural studies or purely feminism with a, from the. Um, humanity side. So they did not actually know any of my literature at all. And some reviewer actually said, I was focusing on populism literature, but some reviewer commented, oh, popularism, do we need this? And then I'm not talking about popularism. You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the reviewer turned out to be, you know, speaking totally different things. So Mm. I, I know, I mean, I don't know what to say. It's interdisciplinary seems glamorous. It's amazing. We learn a lot, you know, by mingling each other. But when it comes to the hardcore of reviewing procedure for, uh, let's say, publication, that's tough. That's very tough. I think that's why students need to be also very careful when they, you know, write their paper. You may need to have a bit of identity of yourself. Are you a culturalist, you know, focusing on human humanity or social science you know you got to have a bit of a stance yeah I think that is definitely as a student something that I'm learning myself you know what I for the first time I'm trying to bring in some different fields of research and I'm like how much do you go into history how much do you go into literature how much do you go into politics before you start to wander into like a bit of muddy territory it's it's a confusing line your paper will be loved, maybe, by historians, mm-hmm. but your paper can be hated by political scientists. Okay? So <laughs> it's, it's very, uh, <laughs> an interesting question. <laughs> something to definitely be aware of. Going back to your work at the University of Edinburgh, I know that you've been instrumental in establishing the Scottish Centre for Korean Studies. And I was wondering what it has been like to introduce this new study centre and what are some of the goals? Has that been impacted by the pandemic? Yes and no. Uh, So far, this is our second year of um, MSc program. Within second year, we have a 10 PhD student in a group not only for Korean studies, but including East Asian relations as well. So this is actually an amazing number. In the second year, we managed to have this many you know, young research students coming in. MSc students, we got affected probably by COVID. We have much less number of cohort. However, students are very committed because from first year, we had a, a four MSc students. Among the four, two joined PhD program and one for foreign, foreign office. I think she's preparing 
the exam. So want to be a diplomat, especially with a specialty in Korea and East Asia, because our students do not run, you know, do not just, you know, study only Korea. To look at one country, you need to look at international relations, right? Then China, Japan, Russia, US, multiple direction, and also UK as well. So our students are pretty much equipped. So I can say um, MSc program, we have an we started with a smaller number of students, but their interest and commitment is really, really you know, strong. So in terms of PhD students' number, which, he, which is a really huge success. And I do have a lot of um, students' email even now for the following. So let's see how many students are coming at the moment. But I'm quite happy about that. And also in terms of visibility of Korean studies, we have a lot of demand. Um, for international events, whether they want to collaborate with us. So I'm pretty much, you know, quite stuck with all this international relations, in external relation um, demand. Sometimes we have, we collaborate with um, Korean Cultural Center launching film festival. We've done very successfully previously with starting with the Korean Noir film festival doing at uh, film, film house. And then Two or three times a year, Korean Culture Center, they they bring, you know, they have Korean movies at film studies that we always collaborate together. And another thing was, I got a lot of media demand from BBC or STB. The moment I arrived, I was so busy in the beginning. I say yes to everybody because I want to let people know, you know, we are doing Korean studies. Now, kind of, I kind of calm down because if you, even if you know you have five minutes in the BBC radio, then it actually takes half of day. Yeah, so it, it's, I realized that's a bit too much. But we did have a lot of attention from media. That's another uh, successful part. And also, we got uh, institutional grant, which is a seed program uh, funded by Academy of Korean Studies that created a job for postdoctoral fellow. And also we funded, we fund a partial tuition fee for PhD student. And our MSc and PhD student, when they want to go field work in Korea, we, we support as well. Uh, including Korean Studies staff, we also get a bit of a research grant out of this institutional grant. So in that sense, you know, we are quite successful. Oh, that's amazing. And that funding for field work, I'm sure that's a really crucial part of, of course, the, yeah. the PhD experience. Mm-hmm. We also have a lot of, you know, seminar and conference every year and distinguished lecture series. And we've been inviting a lot of uh, well-known academics, not only on Korean studies, but broadly in East Asian studies as well. So uh, while we um, engage with international academics, we also... Um, that's another collaboration and networking and you know knowledge exchange, right? And we create also you know small job for PhD students as well as a uh, event assistant. And most of our students they say they learn a lot. They thought academics are just teaching and doing research, and when they look at what we are doing, they think it's wow, it's yeah. a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's something that you don't really know until you're you're really in it. All the different factors that are happening yeah, at so once i tell them i make lots of photocopy i make posters <laughs> <laughs> it's not like uh, you're yeah. doing research sitting in your desk yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah we're not indiana jones you know going off yeah, and no, doing... no. 
100%. I put um, rooms for conference, you know, I call a restaurant to arrange, you know, dinner. You know? Yeah. <laughs> kind of going to the part of being academic that's well known, which is the research and the articles and the publication. I've been reading some of your work that's been out there and it's just been really fascinating. Korean studies. Oh, it's been great to learn about. I mean, I've been to Korea and I, oh, yeah, and I, but I still have not been able to engage too much with the actual literature that's being produced out there. So it's been mm-hmm. so interesting to be able to actually read about it mm-hmm. instead of just hearing about it anecdotally or, you know, my personal experience when I was there as a tourist. Mm-hmm. Um, but one really interesting book chapter of yours that I read was Hel Joseon. Is that how you pronounce it? Is that okay? Yeah, Hel Joseon. Polarization and social contention in a neoliberal age. And I was wondering if you could kind of explain what that term means and how it's relevant to Korean studies today. So Hel, I don't need to explain. Joseon mm-hmm. is a dynasty right before Korea was colonized by Japan. And now we have, you know, democratic Korean government. I mean, if you look at entire peninsula, Korean peninsula is, is divided by North and South. So Joseon is before, you know, the colonial era when society is very um, classified, like a caste system, you know, uh, literati and, you know, aristocrat and commoner and the servant. So why are young people talking about this in a very modernized, you know, Korea is actually rich, right? Rich society. Why are they talking about this class-based Joseon and bringing, combining the world with hell? Why are they saying they are living in hell Joseon, not in 11th largest economy of, you know, Korea? So what we, it was edited volume with my colleagues. So what we've been looking at is that, uh, you know, various sections and actually, the conclusion there is that globalized world made very polarized society. And, but it's not just case of Korea, right? International. Then squeeze size of um, middle class. Middle class. Size of middle class has been shrunk. You could even feel that in, on Princess Street, let's say. People um, at Primark, they stand in line endlessly right after the COVID while I was, you know, walking by, I was really surprised. A lot of academics, some people will say, well, you should not shop at Primark because there is a kind of a, you know, labor issues, you know, human rights issues in a, a global South. They, they make products and make it very, very cheaper. But a lot of middle class are just happy to shop at Primark because their financial status status, and all these worries and uncertainty, it goes down. And you, you see what I mean? And if you look at those uh, medium, the targeting middle class, those soup, uh, department stores, they all close, right? Was it Jenna is closed? Yeah, Jenner's and Debenhams. And... Exactly. All these, you know, so-called middle class targeting business is going down. It has to be very, very cheap one is, you know, doing very, very well. That actually shows a lot. It tells a lot about, you know, polarized society. So what I mean, you know, Hell Joseon is not just about Korea, but the effect of globalization, not just globalization, technological, you know, development, AI, more advanced environment does not need labor job. 
And even laborers, they can't have a union anymore because when you are deliveroo, you know, workers, you actually work for yourself, right? And and we are literally dominated or guided by AI. So the story of Hell Jones and the research about it is not actually about Korea, but we can have it, we can see it everywhere. So that's why we are launching new course for uh, pre-ano courses from next semester. The title of the course is called Seoul, Shanghai, and Edinburgh, People, Culture, and Spaces. Oh, that's so interesting. Yes, I, I, I belong to Korean studies in Asian studies department. But when we look at city of Seoul, that is not the story of Seoul people only, you know. You can see a lot in Edinburgh, a lot in Shanghai. Oh, 100%. I was watching some interviews about Mm -hmm. Korean youths on the street who were being asked about this term. And Mm -hmm. what they were describing, I was like, that's exactly how it felt growing up for me in the San Francisco Bay Area, you know, really high expectations, very few opportunities Mm -hmm. that are just narrowing. And if you're not really at the top, you might fall to the bottom quite quickly. I mean, it is a universal thing, isn't it? Exactly. And also this spoon theory, you know, they talk about the class. Not only they say Hell Johnson as a whole, but they say, I I call that clay spoon, but uh, majority of people, they also call it dirt spoon. So dirt spoon bronze spoon, silver, and, you know, gold. And now, you know, somebody is born with not silver spoon, but even diamond spoon, they call or, or platinum spoon. That actually tells our young people not only their effort, hard work, but what determines their future or their status present is parents' money. Yeah. And a lot of data actually shows that polarization by wealth is more dominant by inheritance rather than, you know, your job or accumulation of your own hard work. So then again, I I don't know. I mean, this is another big question. Do we want state to, you know, maneuver what's going on here? Many students, when I give this kind of lecture on that, I say many students actually ask me, what are you suggesting? Do you want a country to be socialist? And I, uh, I was teaching in Budapest for eight years. Of course, that was not communist country at all, but there is a lot of um, maintaining legacy of post-communist culture. I thought I'm pretty much progressive. I believe in you know sharing or equal, equal opportunities. But once you go and live, experiencing the legacy of post-communism, you may have a question. Because people are demanding, relying on state subsidies more and more, and then there's a less motivation to work harder. You see what I mean? So this is a huge dilemma for anybody. You know, how much role do we give to the state to control us? Yeah, it is a universal problem for sure. And I don't think anyone's even gotten close to figuring it out yet. Exactly. So neoliberal policy failed. That's what everybody says. Then do we invite more role of state? That's still a question. More taxation, you know, more benefit. Whose money are we talking about? Yeah, it, it's definitely difficult to navigate. And I know that you published another piece more recently from that last one mm-hmm. talking about 
you will all say the title, Mirroring Misogyny in Health Trostan, Magalia Womad and Korea's Feminism in the Age of Digital Populism. And this is something that we kind of mentioned earlier. But how does that term and the concept that we've been talking about, Health Trostan, and all of those other terms mentioned in that article, how does that relate to the feminist movements in Korea or universally? It's really interesting. It's not just about uh, gender conflict. Recently, generational conflict as well. Because um, among, in my paper there, there has been heated discussion between gender in 20 and 30s. But they both become like either far right or the, there has been far right group of Ilbe called um, in, on internet in nine, 2015 to 16, around that time. But pervasive misogyny, you know, derogative terms or explanation about, you know, female attitude, etc., has been gone for a really, really long time. But my question is that why is that heated debate, heated hatred around this time? And then someone was saying, because feminist has been really uh, successful in Korea, so there has been a number of reformative introductions saying, Traditionally, Korean woman could not be what do you call householder or uh, the you know representative of household on paper, but because of um, I think it was mid two thousand they abolished that as unconstitutional meaning, woman can be a representative of household. That has been a problematic because what if I'm a single mother? Traditionally, the son of single mother used to be registered as son of brothers or son of fathers or son of someone else, the family head supposed to be male. So woman has been moved by own paper under father and then later under husband. And if husband dies under son's name, what if there's no son, no male there? So you see there's a problem. And another big achievement from feminist side was male, all male, in early, late 10 or early 20, they, there's a national duty to fulfill military due because Korea is divided, having North Korea threat. So if men complete military duty, they used to have additional point when they apply government job. But you know, when we at the job market, or even when we give a grade to students' paper, it's not really a lot of difference. We are talking about two, three grade differences, whether somebody's paper will be above 70, above below 70, you see what I mean? But if male gets additional points, regardlessly, all the government jobs are likely to be male. There's not enough space for female. That's why in 2000, you know, constitutional court said this is, you know, unconstitutional. This is, you know, so there should not be, there should be equal opportunity. There should not be additional point. But then again, there's a backlash. Young male, they get really angry because they, they are wasting their two years, most, you know, important time to prepare for a job. And, you know, we call it alpha girl. In general, up until university, female students perform better than male in their grades. Maybe they are hard worker. I don't know, but that's general statistics. But in the job market, female all disappears. Maybe they 
they marry, they get a job, or you know, they marry, or they they you know they have baby. You need a maternity leave. You know these kind of things. So structurally, even if they don't have you know they don't do military service, females structurally get kind of disadvantage anyway, right? So so from female side, not having additional point for men with a military service is fair enough, but for young men. They cannot bear it. So there was a backlash, strong anger. And their anger is going against their peer female. Not in real world, but on internet. But when they are having heated discussion, you know, the internet environment, when nobody knows who I am, their wordings get stronger, emotional, vulgar. That, that we know. <laughs> so with the hidden identity, it gets really, really nasty. And another thing is, there was a homicide case just because woman, you know. But policemen say, well, it has nothing to do with that somebody has mental problem. But all the female got angry. But at the same time, for 10 years, there has been derogative words. Woman in Korea are called as 된장녀. So 된장녀 meaning 된장 is bean paste. So uh, 된장녀 is a woman. So 된장녀, bean paste woman, meaning actually materialist girls. In 1999, first Starbucks arrived at the most prestig- prestigious female university, Yihua Women's University in Seoul. So the fashion by then by young college students is that you dress well, and you hold Starbucks coffee. If I ask this question to my students now, they will say, nah, now, if you hold Starbucks, you know, coffee, you don't necessarily look cool. But in 2000, that was something cool. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> you remember yeah, that? I remember that. <laughs> so among young people, yeah. you, so what students did by then is Starbucks coffee is of course tastier than ordinary the, the coffee they, they get used to but on top of that it was more expensive than their lunch so they were making fun of these materialistic girls they are having very cheap bean paste you know stew soup which is cheaper than coffee and you know holding starbucks coffee not often bought with her own hard work but probably either parents money father's money or boyfriend's money <laughs> So they were making, you know, Korean women as very, very materialistic without working hard. So that was one thing. And another one is those girls at uh, university, they become mid-20. They may date or they may marry. So by then, their name becomes from Denjangnyo to Kimchi-nyo. So Kimchi-nyo, meaning, you know, kimchi is yeah. a national food, right? So why is it Kimchi-nyo? That is, uh, when they date, women are expecting men to pay for meal or whatever, and women are expecting their boyfriend to buy them Chanel bag. Mm. <laughs> so that is wrong, actually. Not everybody. Yeah. You know, they're just making fun of these specific, yeah. you know, girls, right? But that becomes very pervasive, calling entire everybody, almost everybody, Korean woman, ah, kimchi nyo. They are expecting their boyfriend or father to buy expensive goodie bag. And uh, they, they want only men with a proper job, like a medical doctor or you know, 
diplomat, they, they had a kind of a criteria of who's supposed to be like desirable husband, whatever. Then there's a huge frustration for young men who do not have such a job, who do not have support from parents to date women they'd like to date. So there was another, actually, I did not put it in my research, but there's another statistical data saying there has been uh, more male in those times than female. That is related to a birth rate policy, birth policy, birth control policy by Korean government. They wanted to have small family rather than large because they cannot, they thought population is growing too much. So there, there was a campaign in 1970, daughter or son doesn't matter. You should have, we should have only two children. But by then, there was also another uh, exercise. They, they choose to give a birth to male rather than female. Having, you know, you, you see, so there was artificial control by state and domestic level. So by then, that cohort of age, there were more male then female. Then female has more option to choose, right? Then they would go for. <laughs> so, so that, I mean, when I write this paper, yeah. I, I learned a lot. And also I understood what was going on. And I had a great fun when I write that. Oh, well, that's so that was what I thought about. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So next version is mamchum, meaning mother buck or mother insect, or actually, if you read uh, Kim Ji-young born 1982, the translator translate as a mom roach. So they call it disgusting mother carrying, uh, young mother carrying baby stroller and Starbucks coffee. They call that image as a mom roach. Oh. So you see, so yeah. they're, they're not competent raising children but they are interested in showing off expensive baby tro- stroller and enjoying expensive coffee. So if you read, you know, Kim Jong, there's a movie as well, Kim Jong born in 1982, the, the mother, the young lady, she ended up having mental problem because of this kind of, because she lost her job because of baby. She gave up her job because of baby. So as a woman, you give up your job to take care of baby and you even get derogative um, nickname, like uh, Mumbuck or Mum Roach, you know. There's no respect. Yeah. There's no way to win, really, for a lot of women. If they can't get the exactly. jobs and then they yeah. are looked down upon for raising mm-hmm. a child, it's just mm-hmm. not, there's no way out, it sounds like, for a lot of women. Exactly. And interestingly, I, I wrote an op ed article about um, local election research very recently yeah. as a diplomat. But that what happened in 2015-16, reflecting again, it's in uh, local election by election result. Twenty and thirties, the voters were divided. They did not vote much for the ruling existing party either. But if we look at twenties, uh, instead of voting for progressive, you know, current government, fifteen percent of female voters, they vote for like a very, very small minority parties. It actually shows their um, political action to have their voice. And also male, they vote for conservative party or a lot of young male, they show pretty much far right voices. Then that's, that's another question. Why do they become very far right antagonistic about others? And see what I mean? Yeah. You know, they become 
In a way, they became more aggressive, and politicians are responding to that demand, saying maybe we should abolish, you know, additional point for men, or we should give additional point for male, young male who completed uh, military duty. But I think this is not the point, right? It's not about that was a mi- minimum achievement feminist, you know, activists. And now there's a backlash. They they want to reconsider this. Still shows how much the male perspective is dominating the discussions mm-hmm. in the political atmospheres. I mean, and again, that's not exactly unique to Korea, is it? That's something that we're really seeing everywhere. Yeah. Well, okay. I, t- speaking, kind of shifting gears a little bit. I know that beyond Korean studies, you also do some work speaking about Myanmar, and there's a lot of stuff that is obviously occurring right now. Um, Mm -hmm. over there. And I read a recent article that you contributed to, Myanmar underlines the importance of supporting social sciences, which gives Mm -hmm. a look at the monumental role that university teachers and students play in supporting progressive democratic movements. What do you think is the role of youth and education in overcoming these challenges that Myanmar are facing today? Do you think that it's something that students and teachers in Scotland can contribute to if they're not located in, you know, Asia or wherever these issues are going on? Is it a global thing or is it something that has to be localized? So I've been involved, you know, five, six years of teaching building capacity. We've been helping professors at the University of Yangon and University of Mandalay. And of course, neighboring university professor all came. So we're not just, you know, working on two main universities, but neighboring universities. So all the professors from different regions came to these two big cohorts and we had an ongoing workshop regularly, two, three times a year for five years. And we developed courses together for undergraduate program. And we invited a lot of international academics to give a talk about democracy, uh, institutionalism, and you know, regionalism, and freedom of speech. And I said, we had a number of you know, themes. And when we, we were not actually giving, having a workshop with professors only, young students also joined as well. So for five, six years, there has been a lot of environment for consolidating democratic environment. But still, the society is very um, hierarchical. And then now we, we face this military coup. Before that, there's a Rohingya crisis. Uh, when there was a Rohingya crisis, I was very sad because when we were talking about equal opportunity, fairness, and sharing or thinking about others, including others into our society and multicultural society, and everybody was talking about, yeah, we have different ethnic groups and we all live together, we respect each other. Then why in those multi-ethnic groups, why Rohingya? is not included so why rohingya group they need to be you know pushed away right there has been a lot of horrendous thing happening there the majority of Myanmar people who are actually together with Aung San Suu Kyi they were not really accommodating or they did not really pay attention to it allowing military to do whatever they want and I think I'm working on the paper now about that because the world was just watching, not doing much over military's, you know, atrocity. Now they do even more, not only to Rohingya, but to entire people of their own. 
So it became uncontrollable now. So all many of professors I work with, they are either quiet because they need to be safe. And many activists, professors and students, some they decide you you remain quiet to secure a future, or you become vocal, become an activist. Those people who became vocal, they are running away now. Some are in border of Thailand, giving up their future, their scholarship in elsewhere in, in the UK or US. And all these young academics and students, they are in a front line fighting against military coups. So we had a voices from Myanmar. We had a workshop roundtable a couple of months ago together with St. Andrew and Edinburgh. And we actually... Uh, brought those activists with a uh, you know, hidden identity, brought their voices. We did have a workshop on that. Um, yeah, so he- that's where I am. Um, healing Festival, the second Healing Festival has been delayed. I don't know when it can be done. But there has been a lot of you know, influence. People were enjoying thinking about democracy, thinking about you know, accommodating differences and etc. But starting with the Rohingya crisis and now military coup. It's kind of a backward, right? We're just frozen. So all the hard work has been, but yeah. it takes time. Yeah. I should have said. Yeah. And it's important things like, you know, this healing festival that I think is hopefully going to make the difference in the future. Okay. So I want to be respectful of your time and not take up too much of it. So although I would, I would love to be able to ask many more, especially about the healing festival and your experience with that. Um, I'll ask you one question kind of just to end it in a little bit of a lighthearted note. And we've been talking about places that we've visited and things that we've seen, but I'm always saying as an immigrant myself who loves being in Scotland and has enjoyed my time here so much so far, I'm asking everyone who comes on the show, what has been your favorite place to visit in Scotland and why? Um, I like those islands, Harris and Louis. Those, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sky, but I cannot really point out, you know, what is the best place. But anywhere in Highland, it is just beautiful. It is. It is gorgeous. Yeah. When you're in your day one hundred of in your books and just studying and looking down, to be able to go out mm-hmm. there and see endless sky and hills, it's refreshing, isn't it? Ex- exactly. Sometimes I go for riding retreat, just shut mm-hmm. down from everything and I go and go for the walk in the forest or the very high rock hill you know what I don't know how to call it yeah you walk you know roughly for a couple of hours and come back and I can happily write yeah it actually refreshes that I that is one of my goals for sure I think is to do a writing retreat obviously since I've only been a PhD student for a year I've not gotten a chance to do many of those things but <laughs> hopefully in the future you know you and I might run into each other at one of those writing retreats so I'll look forward to it well thank you so much for coming on today and for speaking with me on these topics I mean it's been it's been one of my favorite hours that I've spent in a really long time I think just being able to hear about these things and and hear your perspective on them and I'll be really looking forward to keeping up to date with more of the stuff that you're coming out because it's been fascinating thank you for inviting me Beyond the Books is a podcast from the University of Edinburgh School of Literatures, Languages, and Cultures. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you tune in next time.